You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I was the only person that died on that gig and that that sums me up perfectly do you need to do well at this gig i think you do watch me die in my hole this is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com this is the comedians comedian podcast Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and this is the fabulous Jen Brister live from the Llama Tree Festival. You will notice that this is a very stripped down episode. There's about 50 minutes or so of the interview and no extra gubbins from me in the meantime because I am all getting ready for the Edinburgh Festival and packing accordingly. So if you would like to come and see my show end of, it's on at 2.50pm daily from the 4th to the 26th, not the 16th. Who works on the 16th for heaven's sake? At 2.50pm at the Liquid Rooms Warehouse. Please come there are many many seats it's free just turn up oh my god here we go everybody here we go by the time you hear this we will be ensconced in the festival so let's hearken back now for a relaxing episode from a festival last week the fabulous llama tree in dorset where i was very lucky to interview jen brister an extremely exciting comedian who as you will hear is absolutely deserving of the recent break she's enjoyed uh, with her appearance at Live at the Apollo. And uh, she is, I think basically you can hear her audibly wince as she starts revealing things about herself and the way she works. And certainly in the room at the festival, there was a real sense of everyone leaning forward going, oh, this is going to be a good one. And a good one it is. So please enjoy this fabulous stuff from Jen Brister. It's all yours. Thank you. So thanks for coming, Jen. I feel like we should... Uh, I never do that big American-style introduction. Don't. I'm like, you know her from Live at the Apollo. It's comedian Jen Brister. <laughs> but that's, that's who you are nowadays, because you you're living the, the dream of any workhorse comedian who's been going 10 years or more. Right, yeah. You've suddenly got the telly break, and you're like, now let's do it. Uh, yeah, I don't... Do you know what? It's so weird. When you get the thing that you always wanted and you just think, God, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. I'm so delighted. And then you do it and you go, right, what's next? And then you just don't enjoy the thing that you think. Like I never, I haven't actually just taken a step and gone, well done, Brister. You got that. Well done, mate. It's what you wanted for 17 years. I just got it and went, well, I haven't had any other offers recently. (laughs) I just can't seem to, I suppose that's the nature of this job. I can't seem to just relax and enjoy and live in the moment and, but I'm not saying that it hasn't made a difference. It absolutely has. But I do do need to chill out a bit, I think. I haven't really... I don't know. I haven't really just taken a moment to just enjoy the experience and to say, you know, 
You did good, girl. And it's, that was, I've recorded it almost a year ago. <laughs> so, yeah, but other than that, I'm delighted. Hey, listen, <laughs> do you want to, my cup is always half empty, so don't, there's no, and you're not allowed to fill it, okay, so that's the end of that. For the benefit of people listening or here in the audience who are not familiar with your work. Which I can, imagine 95% of you aren't, that's absolutely fine. So could you, in that way that comedians hate to do, briefly uh, sum yourself up in a pithy couple of sentences, just to, to tell us who you are within comedy, what you feel you've got out of it thus far, what's going on, how's it treating you? I am predominantly a circuit comedian. I travel around the country and I perform in clubs and I headline some of them and I don't, and others I don't. And I um, would describe myself as an anecdotal comedian. I talk about myself and my family. But more recently, I would say that I'm talking more about stuff about how, about how I feel about things that are happening externally and societally. So, but predominantly, people will know me for my endless impressions of my mother. That is probably what people like best about me, which I'm really trying to move away from, and people are unhappy about that. They really want me just to... Can we have one? No, you cannot have an impression. <laughs> I feel like we've got to have an impression of you, Mum. Can you do us... Uh... She would be livid. Um, she... Don't... Uh, don't do impressions of me all the time, Jennifer. Maybe, maybe do other jokes, OK? No. <laughs> But you have one clap there for the mum impression. That's all right. It's not what we're here for. It's that's not, in, it's not what, entertainment. Yeah, British people love nothing more than an, a foreign accent. And I, oh, that is hilarious. But this, that's interesting that you say it's something you're trying to move away from. I mean, I think of you as someone who your speciality is about, it's certainly observation, but it's kind of specifically human relationships. You're really good at skewering uh, characters of, you know, uh, fellow mothers or judgmental mums or people being judgmental uh, of parents. I think this is something, that, you know, we're aware of, but you've, yeah. got, uh, you've got three-year-old uh, twins. I love lampooning. I love lampooning people. That's like, I get a real good... I get a real no good one ever thing. uses that word anymore. Yeah, it was, was it? It was, it was old, old school, isn't it? Um, I, but I like... Um, yeah, and I, and I like caricaturing people, so I like doing impersonations on stage. I, I really enjoy doing that, and uh, uh, so I always, if I create a character on stage, I, it's never descriptive. I will just become that character, and that is what I... I, I do that with my mum, and I do that with the judgmental mums, you know, or whatever, uh, or, like, I like doing geezers, you know, like... Ah, you know, like, sort of geezer. I like doing those. And just, like, creating um, a per another person on stage with me, so, so it's never just me on stage, and that's what I get a kick out of, probably. And when you say you want to move away from doing your mum, is that because, have you presumably been doing impressions of her for as long as you've been a comic? Yeah, but I did, what I find frustrating is I've done so much other stuff. I've done more material that isn't about my mum, but that's, when people come and see a show, they go, um, I was hoping you'd do that bit about your mum. And I'm like, well, I do other stuff, all right? So, um, but... So I suppose it's because people have started to expect it. As soon as people want something, I don't like to give it to them. That's why. Why is that? Because I'm, I'm just a very con contrary woman. Like, if you... I've always been very contrary. Like if, and that's why I do stand-up, because I don't want people to t tell me what to do. And I don't like people asking me for things, because I will go, no. <laughs> you can't have that. If you like it, I will not allow you to enjoy it. Um, yeah, I think I'm just quite... Yeah, I'm quite contrary. So let's go back to the very beginning. Can you talk about how you brought oh, yourself God. to comedy? Go on, why, and why do you sigh about that? Is that just because you've told a lot of, you know... You... No, I never talk about it. Um, oh, God, because it, it took so long. 
And because I, I went, I went, I meandered for so many years. Um, I first, do you want to know when I did my first gig? Was that um, I went to Middlesex University and they did a comedy course. So when I was 21, which was in 1996, I did my very first gig. And I thought I was a genius. And I came off stage and I was like, oh my God, forget Bill Hicks, I've nailed it. Um, <laughs> and then in 97, Yes, yeah, so it's sort of the end of 96, I did a f- just a smattering, like, like a handful of open mic gigs, maybe like half a dozen, and died horrifically back to back. Not a, single sh- not a single glimmer of any of the hope that I'd had on that very first gig. And I was like, Christ, I am bad at this. Um, and then, and I used to get terrible stage fright. So it would be crippling. Like, if I had a, a gig in the diary, I would have, like, three days before, like, horrific diarrhoea and just anxiety. You know those anxiety dreams that you have where you wake up and you're naked or something or you've, you've got a tattoo that you didn't want or something like that. Um, your fa- you know, like a spider tattoo right on your face and that kind of anxiety dream. So I, I, I had to stop because I just couldn't... The pressure, the pressure was too much. And I just don't think as a human being at 21, like I see 21-year-olds who were fully formed, who kind of know what they want. I wasn't. I was a mess. And so I went travelling for a bit, as, as all middle-class twats do, and went to <laughs> Australia. And I gigged in Melbourne for the five months that I was there. A guy, there was a, a venue called the Espy. And I used to gig there every Sunday. The guy would give me five minutes. And sometimes I'd do well, and sometimes I would die just horrifically. Not like a little bit, but like people would be booing. And the guy would always be like, come back next week. Come back next week, mate. Have another go. And um, so because it was always on a knife's edge, it would go well, or it would go just really badly. It was just, it, it was literally a lottery as to whether or not I'd get through the gig and not die on my ass. And so I just couldn't handle it. And then, and that's what I associated stand-up with, just uh, the possibility of the, mo- of the most terrific death. And I, I just couldn't, I, did, I just wasn't, I, I didn't have the stamina for it. So, I st- so when I got back, um, I didn't do anything really for, for quite a while. And then I kind of picked it up again probably around 99 and I started doing the competitions. I did. That's when I did the BBC competition. Where where does that fit into though, from those very first gigs? Did you do the comedy course and then do your first gigs, or did you do a few gigs and then decide to do the sorry the comedy course, the degree? The comedy course was first. Then I did these gigs, and then was it was just like dying all over the place. Uh, then I couldn't handle it, and then I thought I'll leave it. And then, uh, but I wanted to perform. Like I had this compulsion, so I was like, I found myself doing it again, even though there was no indication that I was any good at it, and other than the fact that I wanted it. I don't know why, but I just wanted it. And then I did did the competitions, and I started to do these competitions. I'd had a year away, and I'd I'd written five minutes of material that I thought was, you know, okay. And I started to just do well at these competitions. And I did the... Certainly in the heat, so I'd be smashing them. And then then again, any time I got to, like, the semi-final, I'd bugger it up, you know. But... I. I could get to a certain point and I was doing the circuit and, and, and I was doing these five-minute spots and just doing really well. And people were like, God, yeah, Jen Brister, she's really great. Da, da, da. And then I got to do 10 minutes and I would do really well. And then I kind of stopped at 10 and I couldn't get to 20. It was like just a nightmare. And I, I can't explain why everything's taken me so long. And it has. I look at... 
I look at other comedians now and they just kind of go, they've got like a plan, haven't they? They've got a three-year, five-year, ten-year plan. I had no plan and it was evident because I was like just bouncing around. And at the same time as doing open spots, I was also doing sketch comedy with a friend of mine, Claire Ward. And we were doing, we, we had like a sketch group that we would perform at uh, places like the Albany and the Hen and Chickens in London. So I was doing that as well. So, it was, so I was kind of not putting my all into stand-up, which is what you need to do. You need to be 100% focused. You need to be 100% uh, committed to it. You've got to be really linear. None of this, I do this, do a bit of presenting. And then, no, do you want to be a stand-up? Well, then do the stand-up. Forget everything else. Do you want, do you, do you want to be a stand-up? Forget friends. <laughs> Forget social life. You, that's it. And it just took me a long time to, to find that focus and to be... I don't know, to have the maturity to be... Uh, maturity is the wrong word, but to have the confidence, the self-belief that I could do it, that I could nail it, and that I deserved it. Why do you think in those early gigs, why was it... That's, that's not something I hear very often, that it was the flip of a coin as to whether you'd destroy or be destroyed. Why were the, why were the deaths so horrific? Have you got any inkling as to, to why oh, it was always one or the other, why there were no average gigs? I've, I've got no idea. I've got literally no self-awareness. I remember I did... There was a, a competition that would happen in the... Ha- it was in Hammersmith. What was it called? Oh, God, I can't even remember it now. A Cosmic Comedy. And it was, a, it was a gig in Hammersmith. It was quite a big gig. And I would go, and I would usually do quite well. And so they asked me to be part of this big competition, which was going to be televised. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, and the winner was going to win some money. And I was like, well, I'm just nailing these competitions pretty good, I'm, you know. And then I went, and it was so bad. Somebody threw a beer can at me, and then I just completely, I like, because I've got no experience, I didn't have the tool belt to, 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 to handle a situation like that. Like now I'd just be like, I'm going to go for you, mate. I just crumbled into a heap, and that was like the most awful death and I think the worst part was I'd invited some friends to come and see me that was the first and last time I invited friends to come and see me by the way and they just watched me die and then it was very hard for me to ever convince them that I could comedy was something I could or even should be doing I I just want to drill a bit deeper into this I've never had anything thrown at me on stage. I would, apart from one street show I did in Sheffield where I was bottled on, like as I walked on oh, through a bottle. People are animals. They were just rejecting the concept of being entertained. <laughs> but um, like that is, uh, <laughs> we don't want it. Um, but but the to to do badly at a comedy gig to the extent that it turns into the kind of rawhide bit on Blues Brothers where people are throwing stuff. It was what the most was it they objected gig. to? I don't know. I think. I honestly genuinely don't know. There is a big part of comedy which is um, fake it till you make it, you know? Fake it till you feel it. Whatever it is, just fake it. And I just uh, was got really good at faking it, but I never felt it. So I would go on stage and I would appear confident. I would appear quite cocky. I was also very confrontational, aggressive. <laughs> and so blokes just hated that. You know, and, and they would be like, oh, who does she think she is? Right, I'm going to bring her down a peg. And so then they would bring me down a peg and I would just fall apart. Whereas now, when I get that, and blokes are like, I'm going to bring her down a peg, I'd be like, bring it. I don't think it's going to happen, mate. You know, because I'm not scared. I've got, there's no fear now. The, the worst that could happen has happened many, 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 many times. And you, you, you can't bring me down to that level anymore. It's just not going to happen. So. And just while we're on that... 
what is the you mentioned the tool belt you know the like the the armory if you like of how to respond to things do you have a particular uh sequence if you like that you would approach in in a in a comedy gig if someone heckles these days if a man heckles aggressively do you have like a do you have like a you know backup kind of put downs at the ready or do you have a strategy what what's your general strategy for dealing with something like that single them out destroy them (laughs) 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 and always smile you always smile when you're when you're um dealing with a heckler you never get angry this is like your job you're in control never get angry and you always bring the audience in look at this guy what's this guy about we all think he's a prick don't we come on Get behind me. And they do. They're like, <laughs> yeah, he is a brick. And usually if they're in amongst blokes, then all their mates go, she got you. And then you're, and then you're like, you, then you move on. And then if it continues, then you don't need to be so nice because the, the, the audience have gone, you've given him the benefit of the doubt. You, were, you, you allowed him to, you've given him space. He didn't take that space. He's still being an idiot. And then you can go back in and you can say pretty much whatever you like. Um, and I think as a woman, I've got more, I've definitely got a little bit more breadth to, 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 to manoeuvre in that kind of situation. Whereas I think with a guy, it would, it would very quickly escalate into some kind of a fight. But with a woman, uh, as a woman, I can go in and say some really horrifically awful things and, and no, no one's going to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> to get to that point where you, you recognise that you can't lose your temper with a heckler did you go through a period of losing losing it. losing your temper yeah because there's there's initially you talked about when you knew, you're a newer act and you would dissolve you'd crumble and then did you go too far the other way oh before? absolutely i've done all of look, if there is a, if there is like a scale of all of the things you shouldn't have done in stand-up comedy i've ticked in all of them Stu. um yeah i would go in i can't i think it was ian stone i think it was ian um i was doing a gig at the comedy caf and it was my first 20 minutes on a thursday and uh, and that was sort of a uh, that's sort of like a stepping stone to getting a weekend. So you nail that, and then they book you for weekends. So I went in, and I felt really quite cocky. You know, when you go into a room, and you go, "Yeah, this this is going to be great. I'm going to be brilliant." <laughs> and they hated me. And then I came off, and uh, Ian said to me, I, "I didn't. It wasn't a death, but it just wasn't good enough. It wasn't a good enough shop window to to be elevated to a weekend." And Ian just said. Um, you thought about smiling on stage because <laughs> I think if you smile you've got a nice smile and, and people might warm to that he said you're quite angry and I think you asked said that to me Marcus Birdman is like just you're a very confrontational woman <laughs> maybe bring it bring it back and I was that was the other thing is that I would be very confrontational in the green room as well <laughs> I mean you know when I said earlier I wasn't sure why my career wasn't going anywhere? Now that I'm <laughs> talking through it, I can actually completely see. Um, I think I had a conversation with Marcus, actually, about three years ago. And he said to me, you know, um, it's really weird. I was in a green room and, you know, people are saying nice things about you. And I went, oh, that's really nice. And he went, because a few years ago they weren't. <laughs> and I was like, and I thought, because I didn't know. I didn't know that. I was like, oh, why? What? And he was like, because you're quite angry, quite an angry woman. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I was actually. So comedy is also about, and I know this is going to sound really, you know, cheesy, but 
be nice in the green room and then people will want you in the green room. Be a dick in the green room and then people are going to say, can you not book that angry lesbian? She really is just ruining the vibe backstage. Um, and, but I didn't... Me becoming a nicer person or less aggressive, it was not, it was not done with any awareness, by the way, it was just because I got happier. And then that's what happened. <laughs> so this is Jen. I'm having a delightful time talking to her, as you can no doubt hear. And you can go and see Jen. All this fringe at the Monkey Barrel at 1.45pm. I don't believe she's working on the 15th, but she's performing from the 2nd to the 26th of August, not the 15th. That's 1.45pm at the Monkey Barrel. Don't miss her show. She's absolutely on a roll at the moment. It's a fantastic time to see her. I cannot recommend her enough. It's so exciting to see someone who's been brilliant for ages start to get the recognition that they deserve. Um, so I really recommend... Oh, I saw her that night, in fact, at Llama Tree Festival, and she just blew... What's the roof of a tent called? The canvas. She blew the canvas off. Um, it was a really fantastic festival this year uh, with a lot of excellent performances, notably um, from Henry Packer, who I wept with laughter on more than one occasion watching, uh, as well as Sean McLaughlin, who I said in the ConCon group, actually, wow, he's got seriously good. People have been telling me to watch out for Sean for a long time. So get along and see his Edinburgh show and Henry's as well. Uh, and there were other brilliant performances from uh, numerous other folk. So not much of a, a push for the insiders club this week though for everyone who has joined by donating two pound a month or more at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders thank you for your contributions uh, thank you for your i don't just mean the financial ones thanks for contributing to the workspace app where we're all talking hanging out and swapping uh, info about shows at uh, the forthcoming festival as well as asking each other's advice on stuff and uh, getting excited about the new episode of uh, You Interview Stew, in which Andrew White, a, a sprightly young 18-year-old who is taking his first hour to the Edinburgh Festival this year, uh, he picks my brains about what he should expect and how he should survive, and I tell him nothing, none of the real secrets. Um, I, think, uh, I think you'll find that one very entertaining. So if you do want to join the Insiders Club, it's comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. No extra material on it from this episode because it was a sort of special festival one-off where we just barreled through in one go. Um, but thank you very much for everything. Can you hear how nervous I am? <laughs> I've got so much packing to do. Uh, I've got a sleeping boy and he has slept in. This is like he's dropped his nap, but his nap has moved way later in the day. We've had a really fun weekend of bouncing around uh, some dear friends of ours house and uh, and he's exhausted. And now he is napping, but the nap is way too late in the day and it's going to be carnage. So forgive me if I nip this in the bud. Don't miss Jen Brister on tour. Let's hear more from her. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. So let's just stay with the, the anger for a second, because that is something that you utilize in your stand-up, that you are a very uh, passionate uh, comedian, uh, that you are a lot of the... I was listening to that. You sent me uh, the audio of... Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, preview the, your Edinburgh show, which we'll talk about shortly. But um, in that, there are it seems like there's there's quite a lot of this pisses me off. Do you know what I mean? Like that's often the the starting point for a routine. The judgmental mothers. It's it's an expression of of anger. Yeah, but now I've got the chops to talk about that. So if we go back to what I was doing when I was an open spot. I had the, um, which is what you see, and I think you've talked about this a lot on, on, on ComCom podcast, is where we look at comedians who are brilliant writers become better performers later. So, um, so we, when we talk about comedians being writers or performers, I was definitely a performer. So the writing never really matched. So a lot of how, why I was succeeding and doing okay at the fives and the tens and then falling short at the twenties was because I would just had that sort of rhythm. I understood the musicality of a joke. So I could go in and deliver, frankly, quite poor material very well. I sold it every single time. And, um, and I realised probably about 10 years ago that my material, my performance was constantly getting better because I got more confident, but my material was just never, was not matching what it, so I had to spend, like I really spent the last 10 years just drilling and working on my material, working on my writing. And then that has then kind of fed into my persona and, who, and how confident I am on stage. Again, this is something you talk about a lot. The more of you that you see on stage, the better a comedian is. And that is the same for any kind of performance, apart from acting, probably. But um, the more of you, the more the audience see of you, the more almost how more vulnerable you are, the more exposed you are, the more of a connection you make. And then you can talk about, then you can be angry. And then you can be, you can express actual real emotions and feelings that before it was like you know when you go on the the tube and the escalator and it's not you know it's kind of it's superficial for me the comedy that I love the most is when I think oh that's what you really think because the best comedy is what is the stuff that you're not supposed to say out loud I'm not supposed to say that I don't always enjoy being a parent people don't want to hear that but it's true you know, and so comedy gives me, it's quite cathartic, the space to just say the unsaid that I wouldn't say out in public to people. And for some reason, I find it absolutely <laughs> okay to say it to a room full of strangers in a club. I think that's fine. But don't ever tell your mum, you know. Has it, has it had any kind of a therapeutic value? I don't, no one wants to kind of go, I'm doing comedy as therapy. Well, yes, God, I mean, whoever says it isn't is lying. Yeah, of course. Why are we doing this? There's something inherently wrong with us. Um, <laughs> there was some, there's something missing as a child that, you know, when I said to you that I was dying and dying and dying and dying, why on earth would I want to keep doing this? There's literally humiliation after humiliation. Ugh, I've got to do that again. What? There's some sort of kind of self-harm. That compulsion um, is, is partly therapy. And, I, and, and I, I think I'm one of the comedians, and I don't think all comedians feel this, but I, I'm definitely one of the comedians that when I'm not gigging, I 
something I will not be much fun around the house. You know, I need to get out and do and perform. And I do moan about it because, well, you know, we all moan. But I, I do, I do this job now because I can't do anything else because I've spent too long doing this. But also because it is necessary for the, I don't know, chemicals in my brain. And if I didn't have this, I'd have to, I don't know, parachute or something. Is, is there like a, is there a therapeutic arc or is it just a pressure release every day? Do you know I mean? If you write enough about the things that you care about, the things that frustrate you, is there a sort of arc whereby you gradually become a happier person because of all the steam you've let off? Or is there, or is it just on a day by day, you're kind of as angry, but you're rescuing yourself every night with a gig? Oh, blimey. <laughs> Oh, God, this feels like therapy. Um, okay, that's quite a good question. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting uh, uh, point. I guess I don't have that self-awareness, Stu. I think that I would like to think that it... The therapy that I... In all honesty, I think it's probably a pressure valve at this point. I think it could become more. I don't think I'm a good enough comedian for it to be therapy yet because in the way that you're describing in terms of talking about the things that I want to talk about, because I don't think I'm a good enough comedian yet to do that, because the stuff I really want to talk about, I can't make funny at the moment, because I'm just too upset and angry about it. So I think when I get, as I get better at this, I will be able to discuss things that I find, you know, things that that, that would really be therapy for me. Would, and I, I'd be able to talk about them and make them funny, then that would be definitely therapy. Do you mean, do you mean kind of personal stuff or personal do you mean political stuff? And both, personal and political, definitely. I'm not, I, I literally don't have the skills yet to do that. I can do, I can do personally in a very superficial way and I can do politically, again, in broad strokes. But if I wanted to really get into the nitty-gritty and it actually becomes some sort of actually work for me therapeutically, I'd have to be a much better comedian than I am. So in in 2014, I think, you did an Edinburgh show, which was like, it kind of, it felt like, a, uh, from what I've read about it, I didn't see that show, but it felt like you were, you were trying to move into doing political stand-up. Is that fair? Yeah. Or to sort of dip I a think, toe in the water, I, I, like, I can to, I make this stuff funny enough? Yeah, and I, I think I succeeded sort of 60% in doing that. And, I, and, I, and, I, and I'm not hard on myself about that because I wanted to do it. And I tried it and, it, you know, it didn't not succeed, but I definitely look back at some of the material and go, God, that was a very big brushstroke I did there on that bit of material. But that's just because, you know, the, it's the minutiae of, of, of politics and of things that affect, uh, particularly now, societally, in terms of austerity and in terms of what's happening with Trump and Brexit and rise of the alt-right and things like that, you know, to make stuff that to, to to really go into that and make that funny requires quite a cerebral mind, and I, I I've been I haven't been working that way as a comedian, and, and I'm not sure if that will be something I'll ever be able to do. But I I certainly would like to push towards that. I'd certainly like to move into that area, even if I don't always sort of have the uh, capacity to to make it as I don't know. Look, I, I, I support Frankie Boyle quite a bit at the moment. And I, if I was going to look at him, he's very forensic in his joke writing and he, 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 there's no fat on a joke. So when I look at him, I think, like, OK, I, I don't know if I'll ever get to that level of joke writing. 
but that's why he's probably the best satirist in the country. Well, not he isn't probably, he is the best satirist in the country at the moment. And if, if you get a chance to see him live, particularly now where he's just absolute dynamite, do. Um, uh, and I think that's why when I look back at that 2014 show and I, because I've been doing, spending so much time with Frankie, I'm like, wow, that is, they're like, the, 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 the chasm that separates us yeah. there is quite huge. He has, an, of... he has just an incredible ability to, to get a huge political point across, which is well-researched and vivid and all the rest of it, and put that into a, a like a really searing, wince-inducing, brilliant one-liner. I mean, One he's amazing. Line. Yeah. One yeah, bloody yeah. line. I just don't know how he does it. And uh, he, 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 But then he works so hard. It's not an accident. He, I mean, like, I've watched him working, and he's unbelievable. And, he, you know, he, he spends a lot of time working on the set, even before he gets on stage. He's not like, um, I'll see what happens when I get on there. It's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I might start with that. I might not. He's like, this is, this is the set from start to finish and he knows it back to front so can i do would i be able to do this set backwards okay let's try he'll that's how well he knows his material so you know when people go comedy is often a very sharp there's a lot of schadenfreude and there's a lot of like oh how did he get that and i haven't a lot of the time people are hugely successful because they work ridiculously hard to get there and he's definitely one of and, and also as well as being supremely talented you know so we were talking earlier about you feeling like it's taken a long time to get here. I mean, you've been doing stand-up for 17 years. 17 years. And you, I think, are one of those people who, when you got live at the Apollo, a lot of us who've been going around the kind of 15-year, you know, 12, 15-year mark were like, yes! Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah, come on! Like when, you, when Mickey Flanagan first kind of broke onto TV, he'd been floating around at the top of the circuit for years with everyone going, why isn't Mickey famous? Yeah. And then suddenly, bang. So... Let's just talk a bit more about that, about why... I mean, why do you think it has taken you this long? Is that a... I think... Is, is that something down to you, or is it just due to the, the vagaries, the circumstances of TV and the way this No, TV it's me. I, I mean, I'm sure it would have taken me longer to get on telly anyway. I don't, I don't have any... Um... I, I don't think I would have... Like, if I had sorted my life out, I would have been on TV five years ago. No, I think... Um, but for for the reasons why I've taken as long as I have to get to be successful as I am, there's nobody responsible for that. There's no sort of like hidden agenda or some sort of like conspiracy to hold me back. The only person that's ever held me back is me. And um, so, oh God, I knew you were going to ask me this. I, I literally try not to think about how long it's taken me. And I literally try not to go back. Because when I go back and I think, what the hell were you doing, you stupid woman? I don't know. I think a lot of it was I wasn't very happy. I think um, I probably was drinking too much. And um, because also I will put this down, and I think a lot of gay, gay people can probably relate to this. You do everything late. So you come out late. So my adolescence happened in my late 20s, you know, like dating. I never did that as a teenager. I never did that in my early 20s. I started dating uh, in my... Uh, I got into my first relationship in my mid-twenties. So when it ended in my late-twenties, I was like, I'll, be a, I'll do the dating thing. And everyone else is like, I'm going to have children, you know. So another reason I never really got my head around being serious about stand-up was because I wasn't thinking about my career. I was thinking about, I want to have fun. I, all that, I didn't have fun as a teenager. I want to have fun in my 20s. I don't, don't want to take anything seriously. I want to go out and drink and 
stay out late and go to all the clubs that people talked about that I never went and did and you know, experiment with drugs and all that. And I did that in my 30s and my 20s, which is, I know, it's, it's tragic. But um, uh, And also, with there was this huge amount of arrested development. Uh, I, kn- I know that, I, I mean, obviously I've got children now, but there was a big part of my life where I was like, well, I'm not going to have kids. I don't need to worry about that. So I'll just, you know, I, I've got a bit of extra time. I, I kept thinking I've got a bit more time. Mm. And then... I don't. I think it was when I hit my mid thirties. I went. You haven't, love. You are running out of time, and I. That's when I think I really just put my head down, and I just didn't look up, and I didn't concern myself with what anyone else was doing. I just. That was it. I was, was there so? What can you think of a year or a show that that was the time you changed gear? Uh, Two thousand and nine. Um, I it was a very dark year for me. <laughs> I. I've done my first Edinburgh show in 2006 and then I got a break I wish I'd never gotten which was I got a presenting job on BBC Six Music and then that made me think I was Johnny Big Bollocks Um, and I genuinely thought well I'm set now I've got this career at BBC (laughs) I'm deluded Um, anyway fast forward a year and a half I get sacked and um what did you get sacked for? Well, lots of reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Probably uh, because I was a bit of a dick. Um, uh, more, please? Well, I tell you, um, uh, I started at Six Music, and Six Music is very much not... was was, was um, I don't want to get into the politics of it, but there was... This, what was happening with Six Music? It was it was it was only on the internet, and it just sort of moved over over to sort of uh, DAB, but no one had it, and so no one was listening to it. And it was really just very conservative. And they were like, "We just like music, and we like people who like music, and we just want to talk about music." And then the um, Lindsay, um, I've, forgotten, I've forgotten her name now. Anyway, that's embarrassing. Uh, that was sort of the controller at the head of Six, Six Music and Two. Wanted to make Six more like Two. Wanted to make it more personality driven. Wanted to make it a bit more appealing to a wider audience to get Six on its feet. And people really didn't want that at Six. So I was t- brought in as new talent. Uh, there were lots of people that brought in as new talent, like I think Adam and Joe and... Um, uh, Russell Howard and John Richardson and there was lots of things R- Russell Brand had his own show and they hated it, they hated it they didn't want us there and um, I was very much like well, I'm here so just get on with, let's just try and get on with it rather than being empathetic I just went, well look I think I basically told a producer not to be a dick which is the most dickish thing you can do. I mean, is, is it? It sounds a bit like you'd been given a job and the people uh, I, on the ground were resisting it. That doesn't make you a dick, surely. Well, yeah, but you're going into somebody else's workplace. Do, do, do you know what I mean? And it's very much, it's a very, you know, it's territorial and you have to sort of, it's like going into someone's, it's like as a comedian going into someone's town and going, hey, it's nice to be here in, you know, Manchester, what a shithole. You don't do that. I mean, if you, well, you can do that, but the, the audience are going to be like, well, fuck you, what are you doing in my town? And very much the same, you can't walk into somebody's place of work where they've been working for years and go, well, get behind this bit of talent, mate. Hey, <laughs> eh? hey, eh? come on. So, um, I probably didn't make a lot of friends, but I did work really hard. I worked really hard in writing lots of material. I worked really hard in trying to understand how to drive a desk so I could be independent and so the producer didn't have to do as much and all that sort of thing and build a show. But 
ultimately, Saxgate happened, and everybody that was under the banner of uh, the sort of umbrella of those two um, big agents off the curb and John Knoll Management were and that weren't on a contract were sacked, which I wasn't. I was in between the contract and con- contracts, and anyone that was on a contract as soon as their contract ended, they ended up getting sacked eventually so um and that was that was that so and then I was right all that money I was earning was gone um and I was back on the circuit with my tail between my legs and having done my first hour in 2006 and established myself as a stand-up comedian that was just sort of breaking into clubs if if I hadn't quite made it in all of them I was back as I was an open mic uh, act in uh 2008 and I had to work my way back up. So in 2009, Avalon said, um, we want you to do the comedy zone. And I was like, I'm not doing the comedy zone because I'm not a new comedian. And they were like, doesn't matter what you think. Nobody knows who you are and you haven't been gigging properly for, t- for over two years. Get on, do it. And the comedy zone, for people that don't know, is a sort of showcase of four or five new comics, oh, which presumably you're then on with people who are in their first been two going, years of gigging. Yeah, they're like 11 you must have loved that. Oh God, it was awful. I mean, really, you know, I was with nice blokes, and they, they, but they were young, and they were having a very different Edinburgh to me, and they were having a, it was exciting for them, and it wasn't for me. I didn't want to do it, and uh, yeah, I really struggled. I really struggled with that, um, and also I knew that a lot of people were like, I had so many of my friends were like, "Why are you doing the comedy zone?" And I was like. Uh, don't know, I don't, I don't know, but I have to. But in hindsight, what brilliant! Glad I did it. What a leveler! And also, who I was no one. Who did I think I was? I wasn't anybody. I should have done the comedy zone, and it was good for me, you know, to start ground zero and work my way back up, which I did. Presumably, in the in the company of people, if they were having their first Edinburgh, they were really hungry and working hard, were they, they or were, were they making the same mistakes you were making no. eight years previously? I, I did the comedy zone with Chris Ramsey. Oh, okay, fine. <laughs> so I don't know if I've never met anyone that is the polar opposite of me. Yeah. And I just watched him, the confidence on that boy. He, well, he's a man, but um, it felt like a boy to me. Um, I just was, I had a huge amount of admiration for uh, Chris and I watched him. He had Rip no it. doubt. He just ripped it. Ne- there was no doubt ever. And if he ever had a... He didn't die ever, but he had one gig that probably didn't go quite as well as he wanted it to. It was n- not his fault. The audience were completely off. And that was that. And whereas I would go away and um, every gig, good or bad, analyse that. Hmm. Could that... Why did that happen? And what... Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And then... So you're not in the moment because I'm was never in the moment on stage, which is what I am now. Um, I was analysing what the audience were thinking of me, what I was thinking of the audience. Who was in the audience? Was anyone in the audience that was important watching me? Oh, oh God, I've just spotted Jack Whitehall standing at the back. Oh, I'm dying on my ass. You know, it'd be like that. I just care. There was one Saturday, which was the only Saturday that I really needed to do well. I'd invited a couple of... Um... <laughs> Can I say this? Oh, who cares? I've left Avalon. I wanted to leave Avalon. <laughs> I invited a couple of agents to come a and see A large me. comedy agency. Um, and I... Uh, it was full of industry. It was just one of those Saturdays. And full of famous people. Like, just f- somebody from Franz Ferdinand and bloody... I don't know. Everyone was there. 
I was the only person that died on that gig. And that, that sums me up perfectly. Do you need to do well at this gig? I think you do. Watch me die in my hole. And that's what I, that was my uh, that, that, that was my route. That's, that, was, that was the route I always took. Do well enough to people notice you and go, oh, I think Brist is quite good. Now here's an opportunity. Completely just screw it up. And, and uh, just self-sabotage. And, and just consumed by doubt and consumed by, well, I don't know, just imposter syndrome, all that kind of stuff. Those gremlins that you have on your shoulder which I don't have anymore. Um, uh, just, I, I, took me a lot longer to shake all that kind of that, stuff. Well, this is the question. How? For anyone listening to this who still suffers from those gremlins, or for when I watch the, uh, your set at Live at the Apollo, the look on your face when you walk out is uh, complicated and brilliant. I saw you <laughs> walk out and go, I, I felt, I don't want to put some words in your mouth, but I felt like that look on your face was like, right, this then. Do you know what I mean? It had, oh, yeah. it had layers of, how's this going to be? It's going to be fine because I'm going to make it fine because mm. I'm, I don't I'm know. Ready. I don't know. I recommend anyone listening uh, here or at home to watch that set, A, because it's a really great set, but also with this backstory in mind, with you having been someone who fucks up under pressure at the highest pressure TV gig that you can get, really apart from, say, Mock the Week, you know, yeah. in British comedy, in terms of like, this is going to be your calling card for the next year or two or yeah, you know yeah that there was a really complicated look on your face tell me what you were thinking at that time i well two things were happening i was ill um if, if you listen back you can hear my voice is quite husky and that's because i found out later i had fluid on my lung i was really not well um so i was kind of so before i before i what when, when you're waiting to go backstage i was like coughing 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 then there's this moment where they put you behind the screen and you're not in a booth, but you're in a kind of like a little square where you have to wait until the screen comes up. And they reveal it was all a joke. <laughs> <laughs> There's nobody here! <laughs> um, and then you walk through the smoke and then you do the thing. And I just remember being behind the screen going, yeah, this is it. You can do it. And I, I'm, of course I was nervous, but I didn't have overwhelming nerves. I had the kind of nerves where you go, you are ready this is going to be great. You're going to have so much fun. And I, yeah, so when that screen went up, I just went, bring it. You know, I thought, this is it. This is, this is, don't want to quote Martin McCutcheon, but this is my moment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, how, so, so it's very, it's, it's so, so the, the, from 2009 to 2017, uh, which is when it was recorded. Yeah, it was, that's a big journey for me to take. And, and what, was it how did you do it how did you get rid of that outside eye that and analyzing everyone in the room is anyone important am i doing this right am i doing it well enough it's what robin Ince, we were talking about it on on the podcast um he called it hypervigilance. like and i feel i suffer from that as well that sense of like what, what am i doing right now is this okay is this good yeah. enough is it? so how the fuck did you cure that or how did you get over it or how did you let go of it two 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 things um a huge amount of stage time so I, when I couldn't get the stage time in the UK and people weren't booking me and I was like, I've got to get up to the next level, I took myself to Australia. And that was thanks to Francesca Martinez, who has been a really big champion of mine uh, and a very good friend of mine. And she said, and I said to her, I'm really struggling to get the gigs. And she said, come with me. to I'm going to Australia and uh, you'll get loads of work. And I was like, what am I going to do in Australia? So I had a show, uh, British-ish, in 2011. I went 
And I had like three months where I gigged every day, some, you know, often three or four times a day. Uh, I don't know how many, I, I, would, I would be doing like 90 gigs a month, like insane amount of time. And I, and then when I got back to the UK, then I would um, just try and gig all the time. I, you, if you gig so much that you stop thinking about you, you just stop thinking you, that it's just another thing that you do, like going to the loo, having lunch, whatever. You just get up, you pick up the mic, and it's like, oh, this again. Then you, there, everything slows down. Uh, you're not hypervigilant. You're not, your care factor drops, and you're just in the moment. And all of that, for me, was put your blinkers on. Don't look at what anyone else is doing. Don't concern yourself that everybody else seems to be doing better than you, because they were get on with it what do you want to do i decided i wanted to be the best comedian i could be and keep getting better and hope i get noticed and that's what i did it's, it's, it was really no more complicated than that then my children were born and my care factor dropped below zero so i literally didn't give a shit i was i was no longer jen brister the comedian i was jen brister the, the mum and so i didn't I, I didn't identify as a comedian singularly solely identified as a parent primarily that also happened to do stand-up comedy and so I stopped strangling the thing that I wanted which is what I did for years I was like I must have this and I just, just I was like I'm so tired I just turn up at gigs going I don't even I can't even is this a dream sequence I didn't even know what was happening most of the time I get through it so I can get home I'll have to get up six or seven times in the night with the kids. And that, that was it. And uh, so, so, yeah, it was two things. Head down, get on stage as, as often as I can, and really focus on writing. Just write as much as you can. And then my children arriving and just creating a huge amount of perspective, which is, I know, a cliche, but it's absolutely true. And I've never produced creatively as much as I have since my children were born in a third of the time. Yeah. I mean, what was I doing? <laughs> when I had all that time, I don't know. I don't know what I was doing, but now I have like you've got Tuesday afternoon. I can get shit done. I can get stuff done. Well, let's before we wrap up, then let's just talk about your writing process. What does it look like on a Tuesday afternoon when you go, okay, I've got three hours and I've got to get everything done? What are the what are the tasks you're doing? What is it? What's what does it look like? I I what I tend to do is I have stuff that I want to say on stage and I tend to improvise a lot of stuff when I'm comparing or um if I'm in a gig that's quite not like not 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 a big club gig but sort of just a kind of a lo-fi gig and I will experiment with stuff and then I'll go oh that's quite a good idea or that was quite a good thought and then I'll go and then I take it back and I to my laptop and are I you, will... Are you taping it to remember it or do you just remember it because it felt right? I should tape it. I never tape anything. The only thing I ever tape are my previews and that's because they are, uh, at the beginning, eight, 90% improvised and if I don't tape it, there's no way in God's earth I'll remember. And then, so I go from being really free and, and not worrying too much about where the joke lands. I'll go, it, it will land and I trust that it will. Or if it doesn't, it doesn't. Um to then <laughs> typing it verbatim onto a document, which I know everyone thinks, what? Why do you do that? And I do that, one, because it helps me remember it. Two, because a lot of the time I forget how much material I have. A lot of the time I go, oh, 
did I, I, what was I doing two years ago? Was I just doing that five? I must have had more material. If I have it all down, and if I sometimes just put a line, I go, I don't know what that means. So now I write, and then I write it all out. Uh, and sometimes when I write it all out, I can see, oh my God. You get a highlighter pen and go, where's the joke? It's there, it's there, it's there. Why are there like 75 more <laughs> words there than need to be? Get rid of those. Um, and sometimes I will actually write, very rarely, I will write a joke at my laptop, perform it, and watch it fail. Because it never flies. I very rarely have written a joke that has worked on stage. Nearly every single bit of material that I've done that's worked on stage is worked on stage and not on my laptop. But then I will go away and write it. And so I have this show. And then I, and then I knit it all together with as, as few words as possible to make it as tight as I can. And just try and keep all the flab off. And try to kill the darlings if they're like, I love this bit of material. At the moment, there's a bit of material. I absolutely love performing. And it's just so hit and miss. It's like... Can, can you tell us what it is? Can you look at I've that bit? I've got the, this bit about um, uh, middle class, first world problems, middle class people and how we're living through this terrible crisis of, you know, famine and the Syrian war and alt-right and Brexit and all that and global warming. But if you're middle class, life is sweet. You know, what was the last thing that affected middle class people? The devastating courgette shortage of 2017. And then I just go into, <laughs> pretend to be a posh woman, go, Gemma, I'm absolutely appalling. I haven't been this distressed since I broke my finger, I've cut my finger on a broken um, creme brulee ramekin whilst baking egg shakshuka. So, <laughs> and nobody ever laughs, but I think egg shakshuka is really funny, guys. <laughs> get behind egg shakshuka. Think about it. That is a funny word. Um, and, and just to, so do you, with a bit like that, that you want to work, that you can't make it work, what are the processes you're applying to that bit? Are you pulling it in different directions or are you just banging away at it at the same time every time going, no, laugh, you bastard? I, you know, I'll, I'll, I, I stretch it out and go, oh, the children are desperate for ratatouille. I haven't made a rainbow salad in weeks. You know, I'll play around with it. And, but it, for me, it's, it's funny. It's a, what I think it is, rather than that bit being funny, it's kind of amusing. It's sort of an amusing thing that you think, yeah, that's quite true. Yeah. If you're middle class, life is sweet. That's true. But it's not, it's not cutting enough to be funny. It's just a sort of uh, a mildly kind of bleh, nothing. But I just... I, like, I, I really like it, I'm sort of, but I will get rid of it. It's going to go. Um, uh, and also because it feeds into another bit, which I like to keep, which I'd have to lose as well. But, yeah, so I think Killing Your Darlings is really important for Edinburgh because they will, they will ruin your festival. Because that thing that you love, you'll forget. You won't even know why, what's not working. Once you get to Edinburgh, you won't have the perspective to know it's that bloody thing that never worked that's not working still. And it'll be one of those bits that you bin naturally in September and think, why oh, did I get rid of this before? Yeah. If you, when you do your run in Soho theatre, you'd be like, why the hell did I keep that piece of shit? That's gone, that goes. And inevitably, you're, you have to trust that your show will expand. So if you turn up with 50 minutes or 51 minutes or even 49 minutes, don't panic, it will be 55 by week two. It always will be. If you... You know, if you have that, if you are that kind of comedian that just allows it, your material to breathe, it will always get longer. Boop.
Before we finish, uh, if it's okay with you, and I forgot to ask this beforehand, uh, I will throw open to the floor if anyone has any questions. Uh, and I normally have a backup question to cover it while people think about it, but this gentleman is raring to go. I'll need to repeat it into the mic for the sake of the recording, but fire away. So historically, was there one comedian who made you want to be a comedian and who is currently your favourite? Well, uh, when I was growing up, when I was a teenager, I guess, uh, comedy for me was Victoria Wood and uh, French and Saunders and, uh, you know, Rowan Atkinson and Blackadder and all of that. that, that I, I just looked at what they were doing. And that's why I kind of went into sketch as well, because I just looked at that and thought, that just looks like you're just having fun with your mates. And I, I thought that looks brilliant. Stand-up-wise, a lot of stand-up that we had growing up was kind of like old blokes, wasn't it? It was like Frank Carson and J- Jimmy Cricket and... N- n- you know, there's no disrespect to, to them. They were all brilliant what they uh, what they did, but I, nothing that I would be able to go. I relate to that. Um, I, when I was a teenager, and I used to go, I was very obsessive about comedy. I loved watching Rona Cameron and Donna McPhail. They appeared to be the only women on the circuit at the time. That uh, Joe Brander, by this point, it was on, on telly, so wasn't gigging as much. And that those women were very important to me. And I, 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 um, I absolutely loved watching any woman that had the chutzpah to get up on stage was a hero of mine um now frankie boyle yes is is definitely one of my favorites um probably be maria bamford yeah i just could i can literally watch maria bamford all day there are certain women i love watching all day bridget christie i could watch her all day uh kerry godleyman makes me howl just her face <laughs> if you haven't seen Kerry, go and Zoe Lyons is all the you know my you know I think if you if you want to see someone that's up and coming that's probably going to go completely berserk soon is Susie Ruffle. I'm, I'm talking about yeah. women here. She's absolutely kicking. Yeah, so there's definitely a groundswell about Susie at the moment. Something yeah, happening yeah, with Susie yeah, yeah, Ruffle. Yeah. She's gonna she's gonna erupt. And uh, Eleanor Tiernan is another one. Or watch a bit of Eleanor all day. Um, but and uh, Athena, who's on Athena, uh, doing a preview after us Athena in about uh, half an she's hour time. Abs- yeah, she's got a lot of um, fizz about her as well at the moment. So, um, yeah, there's, once you start mentioning women, you go, oh, why didn't I mention? But there's loads of great women at the moment. And I, and I, I, I think I probably, even to this day, still love watching uh, women do well on stage. I get a real kick out of it. So this is harking back to the advice Ian Stone and Marcus Birdman passed on to you about smiling and making use of your warmth on stage. Do you have you passed that on to uh, other acts? And if not, what what advice mm. have you passed on to newer acts? I think it's really tricky for me because I know it's you, people don't want advice. I know that I never really wanted advice, although that was good advice. People like Ian Stone and Robin Ince and Marcus, who are friends of mine, and 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 and. Robin has also given me lots of good advice over the years. Um, I listen to them because I know it comes from a place of, like, you know, I want you to do well. I think you're good. Take it or leave it. Mm. Um, I think I try to... The times that I have tried to give advice, probably I can see that the act is like, didn't ask for that, mate. You can feel the people getting a bit defensive. I think the only thing I, I often say to new acts is, just just chill out you're not there yet don't worry about it just keep going i think there's a lot of with so much stand-up being on television that if you're not on telly you're not succeeding it's like if you are getting booked by anybody that then you are on your way and don't ask questions because that drives me 
Of anyone, the audience. Here. Anyone here married? Anyone here been on holiday? Uh, who likes who likes shoes? I mean, just shut up and tell a joke. Um, I'd love to finish on shut up and tell a joke, but we have got four <laughs> minutes left. <laughs> so, something I was going to ask you: um, What do you consider to be your strengths? What are your superpowers as a, a comic? And feel free to blow your own trumpet because I'm going to ask you what your weaknesses are as well. Um, charisma, guys. It's hard to say in front of a crowd, isn't it? What a wanker! <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I, I can say charisma, and I can say it without being too much a wanker because I know I literally had no material for a long time, so something was going on there that people were allowing me to stay on stage longer than they should have. They should have booed <laughs> me off immediately. Um, I think I can make a connection with an audience, particularly when I'm comparing. I find it very easy to connect in a big room, in a small room, and make people feel like they know me. Um, so I think those would be my superpowers. Okay. And what areas of your comedy practice do you think... What things do you see other comics do? Not mentioned in Frankie Boy, we talked about that kind of that sort of zingy political uh, sharpness of the, of the writing. What things, uh, either performative or writing-wise, do you see other comics do and think, I wish I could do that? Well, nothing, Stu. I mean, <laughs> no, um, lots of things. I mean, lots and lots of things. Um, I uh, people that do set lists and all that kind of stuff. I, I have never done that. Um, That's interesting for someone who writes on stage and improvises a lot. Yes, but but then there we go. There's a little gremlin there that maybe I okay. haven't quite shaken off. Uh, so I will stop myself from doing certain things because I'll go, you're probably not going to be very good at that. Uh-huh. Like, for me, stand-up, with the material that I know, come on, yeah, great, I can do that. But suddenly, you, you making up a set list on stage, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm not in my own... Uh, it's, not, it's not on my terms, so I think there's mm-hmm. a bit of my brain that would shut down. I don't think that's a bad thing. Go on stage, have it shut down, maybe die, come back, do it again. I just... I think that I think that would be good for me to do it. Um, so when I see people doing that, um, I, I, I think that's great. I like like I've watched Zoe Lyons do set list, and she's absolutely phenomenal mm. at it. Um, and I think watching people deliberately do things that are a bit scary, like I I don't really when I'm doing a set, I don't really like going into an audience and talking to them too much. I like to, but when I'm comparing. I completely feel free. So I quite, I quite like it when I see people like Ben Norris does that, where he'll just abandon his set and mm. go and just do 15 minutes with the crowd. And I think, wow, I, that, that's something I would like to do more of. Uh, I would never do that. So there's lots of things that I mean, like, I'm, you know, God, the list is endless, really. Things I can't do. <laughs> I try to just focus on the things I can and hope people don't notice. Are you happy? Um, I think I'm content. I mean, happy, what is that? I don't know what that is. That sounds quite manic, doesn't it? Am I happy? <laughs> Not all the time. Um, that would be weird. Can you imagine being one of those people that's always happy? Be like, God, she's a fucking nightmare. Um, I'm very content. And I, my children have done that for me. <laughs> Cheesy. Yeah, that's it. Is that, are you happy, Stu? Yeah, yeah, I'm really good. All the time, yeah. All the time. <laughs> I, think, I think a lot of the things that, that made me unhappy, I care a lot less about. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Please join me in thanking Jen Brister. Thank you. 
So that was Jen. Thank you very much to her. Thank you to Peter Dobbing, the podcast consultant. Uh, thanks to Nathan Wood, producer and editor of this show. And thanks to Julia and everyone else at Llama Tree Festival uh, for having us and for providing such a fabulous place for our conversation. Uh, I am so excited to see all of you up at the Edinburgh Festival this year. So uh, there might be, I'm going to try and keep cranking the podcasts out, but you know it's going to get pretty busy. In fact, I think I can hear the boy awake. So let's nip this at the bud. And I've said that twice. There's no time to edit it. Oh, God, we're really by the seat of our pants here. Um, thanks for listening. Thanks to Jen. See you up there. All details at comedianscomedian.com. And I will speak to you soon. Email me if you like. Info at comedianscomedian.com. And we can discuss why this is so all over the place. No post-amble. There isn't time. Run! <laughs>